Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 22 of Education Suspended. I'm Jessica Pfeiffer, one of your co-hosts. Two things before we get started. First and foremost, we celebrated Jamie's birthday this weekend. So, Jamie, happy birthday. We love you. Thanks for doing all the things. I hope the big 3-0 treats you well. You're changing the world, and we're, we're proud of you. Secondly, it's time for us to announce who won the Education Suspended Yeti that we, we were honestly supposed to uh, announce it last episode but I forgot. So Stevie McBride out in California, you are the lucky winner. Thank you so much for posting everything and tagging all your friends. We had a lot of people do it. Don't worry, we'll go away some more Yetis, but Stevie, you are the lucky winner. All right, let's jump into today's episode. We sit down with Dr. Matt Duar, who's out in Lake Forest, Illinois. I just left this interview just needing to process. There were just so many good things that we discussed. And I was honored that he gave us his time. He does a lot of big speaking events. So the fact that he sat down with us meant a lot. But we kind of dive into the fact that we have forgotten that learning is really nested in social capital and why that's important and how do we get back to that. I really enjoyed, I don't know if I should say enjoyed, but I really was glad that we began to kind of just be transparent in the fact that it seems like we're always stuck in problem solving mode and kind of why are we here? How do we get out of that? And then lastly, the other thing that really stood out to me was just this reminder that I needed of how important it is for our students to see us, to see our teachers, to see our admin, doing the work of caring for ourselves, of prioritizing social emotional learning and letting them know that social emotional learning isn't something separate and that it is the thing and nothing communicates more to them than them being able to watch us do it. Anyway, it's a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Dr. Matt Duar. Recording in progress. Here we go. It's so formal every single time. Matt, welcome to Education Suspended. I'm going to do a brief, I do this every once in a while when there's this like awkward connection between us because there is one. So the moral is that you are from Lake Forest, Illinois, as is my wife. And just so you know, I she has been talking, you know, I work in the education field and she has been talking about Dr. Duar for for years. And so finally she's like, enough is enough. He has to be in your podcast. <laughs> and then my mother-in-law, Laura Hansen was also talking about the great work that you do. So I, I'm so glad this is finally happening. It's good to see you. And we're just honored to have your time. And honored excited. to be here. Yeah. Excited about today. So we start all of our podcasts the same. So if you would not mind introducing yourself to the, our audience, talking about the work that you do, how did you get there? And then our favorite part is sharing your own educational experience. What was that like for you? And is there an overlap from that experience that you had as, a, had as a student, excuse me, to where you are now? Okay. Yeah. By trade and training, I'm a professional educator who focuses really in social and emotional learning. And so that's kind of my general area of expertise is looking at how social connection and emotional safety 
put people into an optimal space where they can learn and helping teachers appreciate that and realize that it is in fact a part of their job to create social connection and emotional safety in their classrooms. And just quickly as an aside, one of the things that's so interesting is that at the high school level, at least, and I think even at the university level, teachers tend to be more siloed and content specialists, and they think that it's not a part of their job. And they think that they don't have enough time because they're so worried about covering content. And ironically, the research shows that you're either going to spend time upfront on SEL, or you're going to spend a compounded amount of time on the back end making up for its absence. And teachers will too often don't realize that they're interventionists, they're SEL interventionists rather than SEL preventionists. Instead of taking the time up front, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Instead of taking a little time up front to create social connection and emotional safety and put students into a place where they actually can access the better parts of their nature and their brain, teachers won't do that. They'll jump into content. They'll focus on curriculum, calendar, and content and not on kids. And uh, as the old saying goes, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And when you ask any institution of learning, what is the biggest, what eats up time and human capital uh, and even financial capital more than anything else? And it's often student behavior, avoidant and disruptive student behavior that impacts the learning environment. And so my job is basically to work in this realm and help people understand that at it's, it's so funny if we actually understand what learning is and the evolutionary history of, of learning and educational neuroscience and the fact that the brain is a social organ, we should just be calling learning, learning, right? But because we've turned learning into a cognitive process and information processing activity, we've forgotten the fact that really learning is about or learning is really nested in social connection and emotional safety. So we have to create these cumbersome phrases in education, like social and emotional learning, right? But really it's just learning. And my, my niche expertise is in mindfulness and breathing and using mindfulness and breathing behavior analysis to help cultivate self-awareness and self-regulation. And we know from the research that when an individual has cultivated and deepened a sense of self-awareness and improved their self-regulation, that then they can actually extend that awareness out and become more socially aware. And then they have the ability to also regulate and skillfully manage relationships as well. And so now we're identifying the different, the four different competencies of social and emotional learning. So that's kind of like my, my niche expertise. See, I knew I was gonna interrupt. I took so many notes in that brief second, but I think what's connecting is the social capital, whatever you said, is like, we have forgotten that learning is nested in social connection. But I think we're actually being reminded about that right now in the midst of coming back from COVID, getting kids back in classrooms of like, we are seeing the ramifications of when that social capital cannot be built or cannot be strengthened. And we're, we're in the midst of that. So I think that's coming up and we can come back to that, but let's go to you. What your story as a student, is there any connection to what you do now? 100%. I, I grew up in a home with death, divorce, and addiction. I went to um, Catholic schools from kindergarten through my first two years of high school and, and failed all the time. I was a discipline issue for, for teachers. I was very hyper, very loud, 
Love to be the prankster, the goofball, the class clown. Uh, I was actually held back twice by the time I had gotten to my sophomore year of high school. Um, I then transferred to a private school that was not Catholic, and it changed my life. If I were to, I always say this, if I were to stretch my life out on a timeline, the before and after was going to that school, Lake Forest Academy, where I, for the first time in my life, came into contact with co-regulating adults who saw their job as more than being content specialists. They, they saw that here's a kid who needs to be loved, to, to be cared for, to be guided. And I'll just tell you a quick story to that end. Within a few weeks of being at Lake Forest Academy, I was already being called to the dean's office, which was a very familiar process. And so I'm, I'm walking to the dean's office, called out of class. I'd been a pain in the ass. I don't even know what I had done at that point. And so I'm getting called in and I'm just ready to hear the, the regular thing that I heard repeatedly that you're this, you're that, you're never going to do anything. You're all this stuff, right? Just, just putting this identity on me. And I, I played the part up until that point. And so I remember walking into this Dean's office and he was just sitting calmly in his chair and he says, Hey, have a seat. So I sit down in his leather couch and he just turns and he faces me and I look at him and he looks at me. And he just has this look on, on his face, just like this. He says nothing. I'm just looking at him and he's just looking at me and I'm like, okay, this is awkward. And then he says, Matt, help me understand why you are the way that you are. Wow. I had no idea how to respond to that question, right? And so I must've had like a deer in the headlights look on my face like, dude, I, I don't even know what you just asked me. And uh, I said, I, I don't know. I don't know. And he said, that's okay. That's okay that you don't know. But what I want you to do is I want you to start thinking about that. Is that okay? Can you do that? And I was like, yeah, I can. And he said, before you go back to class, I just want you to know that I think you're really intelligent. And I think you're capable of a lot more than you think you're capable of. But that doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what I think. You have to believe that, that you're capable of something. Do you understand that? just nodded and kind of generally understood. I was more just feeling awkward in this moment where he wasn't yelling at me. He wasn't, it was like someone supporting me emotionally. It's like, this is, this is weird, right? And so I walked out of his office and I walked out and I knew something was different. I knew something had just happened that was really important, but I had no idea what in that moment. So I, I go back and I, I look at that from just everything I understand now and talk about a, just an absolutely brilliant move as an educator to open a space of self-awareness. Hey, Matt, help me understand why you are the way that you are. Instead of telling me what I am and who I am, open a space where I can investigate why I'm that way and then provide some positive reinforcement. Hey, you're capable of so much more then you're giving yourself credit for. So anyways, I'm rambling, but, but it was just, obviously it was a powerful moment. Here I am all these years later talking about it on a podcast. And, and so that place was just, uh, it, was, it was remarkable. It changed my life. And, and it got me thinking that, hey, maybe being a teacher wouldn't be such a bad idea after all. Can I ask you another question about Lake Forest Academy? Yeah. The way he treated you was... I, I'm assuming that's the way he treated his staff. 
did you notice a, a community feel, a collegial feel, a, a different feel amongst the staff at Lake? Was that also uh, something fostered there that you noticed as a kid, if you remember that? Um, yes, because it was a, a, a private half boarding school. Half the students were boarding students and half the students were day students. So there was a sense of community and family, kind of tribe that I had never experienced before in my life. And so there, there was an element of that, that people were involved in each other's lives within the educational space in a way that I had never experienced or seen before. And it was really cool. At first, I thought the place was so bizarre because I'd basically been kicked out of my, my previous school. And uh, longer story shorter, because I was good at basketball, I really got into this school. And that was the only reason, wasn't my grades that got me in. And so when I got there, it was just, it, it was such a trip for me. I, re I remember sitting in Dr. Bird's English class. So I was repeating my sophomore year and they were talking about catcher in the rye in English class. And we, there were about 12 kids in the class. So it was a very small class size and everyone's sitting around a large table. So we're all facing each other. And my fellow students are writing down notes and jumping in and interpreting Holden's red hunting hat and all this stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, where the hell am I right now? Like, what is this? These kids are the biggest dorks in the world. They're geeking out about literary analysis. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I got to get out of this place. Like, this is insane. And, <laughs> and so it just, it just shows how far they were able to kind of move things. And, and they told me later that after my first year there, they actually had a meeting to, to decide whether or not to ask me back. And just a handful of teachers said, no, we, we need, we believe in this kid and he needs to, to know that we believe in him and we're, we're committed. And so they convinced everyone to not cut me loose. And it was really that junior year, that following year where I just took off. I went from a DF student to basically a straight A student, got straight A's through college. And here I am all these years later as a teacher. That's an awesome story. There is this through line, right? And I want to go back to this because you're talking about it at, you're talking about like, right, social awareness, social capital, a sense of belonging, an environment that promotes emotional regulation, emotional awareness. And your story right there talked about what's the impact on the student. But I'm also wondering for you as an educator and now have, you know, you've been in the field for a long time, Steve, maybe this is for you as well. What's the impact on the teachers when an environment like that exists? And what's the impact on the teachers when an environment like that does not exist or is not promoted? How do you see that impacting us as educators? So I think one of the top three core insights of the research on emotional intelligence is that the person of influence in any situation establishes the emotional tone and climate. I'll say that again, because that's a mouthful. The person of influence in any situation establishes the emotional tone and climate. Notice how it says person. It doesn't say kids or adults or make any of these distinctions, because as human beings, we're always in this elaborate nexus of relationships. And those relationships often are hierarchical in some way. People exert authority and influence over us. And so when you look at a school as a space that's a hierarchy of relationships and influence, if the people at the top are fundamentally dysregulated, 
their nervous systems are calibrating everyone else's nervous systems. And so that's what people don't appreciate is that emotions, the, the nervous system and the emotions it creates, the internal states it creates, it's so much older than our conscious minds and our rational minds and our use of language. And so there's a part, I mean, you're obviously probably familiar with Stephen Porges and his work with polyvagal theory. I mean, he talks about, he has a term for it, right? Neuroception, the nervous system's ability to perceive the state of other nervous systems. And when you perceive unconsciously, and this, he calls it neuroception and not perception, because he wants to highlight the fact that it's an unconscious process. It's going around in the background of your brain. And so when you walk in and you see fundamentally that someone is dysregulated via the musculature of their face, the intonation of their voice, their body language, et cetera, you're going to mimic and mirror that right back to them. And so in, in educational spaces where leadership is dysregulated, where the larger community is dysregulated, teachers are going to come in dysregulated and students are going to be dysregulated. Students, you know, I've gotten to the point where if I'm on like a panel and someone starts talking about the young adult mental health epidemic, I'll just kind of interrupt politely and say, let's stop talking about the young adult mental health epidemic. Let's start talking about the adult mental health epidemic because young adults live in the world we created. So let's stop talking about it as if it's happening all by itself and we need to fix it without fixing ourselves first. Oh, Jamie's even giving you a round of applause right now. This is big, but Matt, this is big. I already had that quote prepped. You've said that at a TED talk or something that you did. And I had it front and center of a quote that just really struck me from your work is remember that our students live in the world we created. And then you just said it again. And it blows my mind every time I hear it. Okay, keep going. I, th I think that's it. I think I, th I think <laughs> I illustrated the point. It's just yeah. um, all the research on SEL. I mean, Castle, the Collaborative for Academic and Social and Emotional Learning is kind of the authority on the research of social and emotional learning and education. I mean, their, their big takeaways in their research is that you have to build adult capacity first. If you want to move the needle in any kind of sustainable way, you have to build adult capacity first. To tell you the truth, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk, I'm just being honest, is that education, I think, would be vastly improved if it paid more attention as a field to leadership development. It, it's throwing people who are not prepared to be leaders into leadership roles. And that, quite honestly, that might be one of the top two biggest obstacles to improving education as a whole in 2021 is that leadership is not great. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying it. Leadership typically is not great. And it's not necessarily the individual's fault. They're assuming roles and, and they're not trained, they're not prepared, they lack resources, they lack support, et cetera. And we really need to redefine leadership in education and, and support it and start deliberately cultivating good leaders in education because so many things we talk about will never happen until we do that. Amen. Then what's the connection between this frame of reference that you have, clearly this passion that you have about the interconnection of social emotional learning and academic growth? To where you are at now, this focus on mindfulness, but specifically breath work is something that you're really attuned to. And I love your new book and I'd love to get into that, but what's, what's the connection? Why, why is this breathing important? Why is this notion of uh, mindfulness important? 
So we have to remember as educators that our students are a part of the most distracted and emotionally disconnected generation the world has ever seen. That's not hyperbole. That, that's just a fact. The most distracted and emotionally disconnected group of children and young adults literally the world has ever seen. So when they walk into the door of this school, they're bringing that with them. That is the background environment of learning. So mindfulness is ultimately the practice of learning to pay attention to attention. And we know that the most valued resource in the world today from an economic standpoint is attention, especially the attention of young adults. And the most high-powered, economically profiting companies in the world are companies that essentially manipulate attention. That's what they do. And so our kids are, we forget that our brains are always in the process of learning, right? That's what we know about neuroplasticity is that moment to moment, the brain is modifying its map of reality. And, and so if our students are on phones and our students are practicing habits of attention all day, all the time, and then they come in your classroom, you think suddenly, all of that just disappears? No, they're bringing that right into the learning space. And so there's such a mismatch between our antiquated instructional methods and where the brains are at, <laughs> who we're trying to teach, and how they've been calibrated by this dysregulating environment. And so mindfulness is so relevant because it's, in some ways, it's just acknowledging the elephant in the room, and then it's offering a skill set as a corrective to all of that. So that's one, it's, it's offering a skill set to correct these dysfunctional habits of attention that have been created. So that's good for the student's social and emotional well-being, but it's also improving your work as an educator and leading a learning experience by helping them put their minds into a place where they can actually learn better. So that's why I, I think mindfulness is, is so important. Now, I started a mindfulness program at my school in 2015 and it took off. Everyone was so interested in mindfulness. I did over 300 classroom visits over the span of two or three years. Teachers were very receptive. One of the things I learned rather quickly is that if you take mindfulness and you apply it to breathing, mindfulness of breath, that is a better access point for a beginner than paying attention to attention. Ultimately, you want to get to a place where you're paying attention to movements of attention, but that's very abstract. And it, it takes, I mean, I've been practicing mindfulness for 20 years. And after 20 years, there are times where that can be very difficult, right? Paying attention to your own habitual movements of attention. So when you say, can you feel your breath? Boom. We're, we're, we're dialed into something concrete. And they can notice that simply just by paying attention to their breathing, that it transforms the way they feel. And so now you've got the emotional valence or, or, or the valence piece where you're assigning emotional valence to paying attention to your breathing, that it's giving you a different emotional experience. It's helping you self-regulate. That's really where I started to focus my mindfulness efforts on breathing when I saw that it was just a better access point for, for a beginner. And, and your breathing is your first line of defense against stress. It is the fundamental access point to our physiology. It's as deep as we can go in our physiology with conscious control and, and make changes to redirect our internal state to self-regulate. I'll stop there because I can get lost in the weeds really quickly, but... <laughs> 
with the science of all of it, but th that's really the best initial explanation. Matt, I'm going to ask a question as a teacher. And I actually wrote this down weeks ago and I thought we were going to interview you, but a lot of teachers, fellow teachers of mine are feel like they, they really struggle with it. SEL as an add-on. How have you been able to sort of add it in? How have you been able to do it in a way that was really palatable and, and positive for this group of teachers that you just talked about? That's the million dollar question, right? How, how, do you, how do you make SEL palatable to teachers who resist it and think it's something extra? It's cheesy, but I've heard the analogy of SEL is the plate that you serve learning on, right? right? So it's not another item on the plate. It's, it's the plate, right? It's the learning itself. So instead of going the technique route right away or kind of strategy route, I think when you actually explain to teachers how human development, social connection, emotional safety, and learning intersect, that blows their minds. Once they can see that all of those things are intricately and intimately bound up in each other and that you can't separate learning from those contextual factors, I think that's the most effective thing. And, and so what it speaks to is taking the time with teachers to highlight the what and the why of SEL instead of just jumping to the how-to. I, I said one of the biggest issues earlier in education is we don't develop leaders. One of the other biggest issues in education is that we're always stuck in problem-solving mode, and we have no perspective on anything that we're doing. We're always putting out fires, we're always in the trenches, and we're always looking for techniques immediately to solve problems that are in our face. And that's understandable, and that's the reality of being an educator, but it's what ultimately gets in our way of moving the needle on a lot of these larger issues is we have zero perspective on what we're doing. We're just in survival mode constantly. So any SEL program that immediately jumps to how-to implementation is doomed. And school districts are doing that. I work with school districts now all over the country. And one of the things that they always find so confusing initially about me is that I'm not they want to export their problems and import a solution without doing any of the thinking. And I, ref I refuse to do that. I, I will not do that because it doesn't work. If you're a leader and the board is, is on you to do something, you want to check off a box. So you go import some prepackaged canned SEL program. Okay, great. But that has nothing to do with actually moving the needle on SEL in your particular school district in an authentic way. So I think taking time Getting, getting leadership, getting the board to understand that you have to take time up front to provide a conceptual framework for what SEL is and why it's important, that that is so much of the work. That gets buy-in. When they understand it, then they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. That aside, I, I like to make a distinction, and this isn't research-based to my knowledge. I just made this up, and I think it it makes sense to me. I don't know if it'll make sense to you, but I like to make the distinction between implicit and explicit SEL. Mm -hmm. Implicit SEL is when you walk into a classroom, you know within 20 seconds what the social and emotional vibe of that space is. You know when you walk into a school and you walk around for a few minutes, you know what the social and emotional vibe, it's implicit in how people are interacting, how they're talking, the types of conversations they're having, the way people are interacting. Explicit SEL is using research-based best practices and the language of SEL 
to implement certain programs or practices or strategies so that when you're doing an exercise with students, you're saying, okay, we're talking about self-awareness. We're talking about self-regulation. So they actually have the tools. I think in schools that are most successful with SEL, they have integrated implicit and explicit SEL. Now, if you were to ask me, if I had to choose one of those over the other, which would I choose? 10 times out of 10, I would choose implicit SEL over explicit SEL. What's unfortunate is that nine times out of 10, if I go to a school, I see lots of explicit SEL, if I see it at all, and I see almost no implicit SEL. And so we're getting into this habit, educationally speaking, across the board, where we're just reaching for SEL, and we're just saying empty things and we're just doing empty things and we're getting empty results. And this is what makes teachers increasingly resistant to SEL because it's being presented in this way. And if you're a teacher who's been in the trenches for 30 years, how many of these initiatives and hot topics have you seen come and go over the years? So then SEL is just another one of these things. And it's like, quit wasting my time, leave me alone and let me teach. I I don't know that I answered your question (laughs) the way you wanted me to, but no, no, I was very helpful. And I, I, I love the distinction between implicit and explicit SEL. When, when you've done the training and it's been effective and the implicit side of this is really magnified more, have you noticed teachers creating things you never would have dreamed of that are so good in the SEL realm? Yes, absolutely. Are you familiar with self-determination theory, Edward? DC and Richard Ryan, they're at the University of Rochester. I think in the late 1970s, early 1980s, they came up with self-determination theory. Autonomy, competence, and relatedness are the three needs that we all want, right? We, we, we all seek agency. And if you give someone agency, th- their creativity, their ability to learn, everything just goes through the roof. Well, when you give a teacher agency, their efficacy goes through the roof, right? So when you empower them, to when you help them understand and appreciate what SEL is, and then you give them a space to authentically develop experiences and practices to that end that are consistent with their identity and the culture they've created in their classroom, they do things that are amazing. Just like they do when you do the same thing with regular curriculum and instruction, when you give teachers time to actually have professional educated conversations about their craft, they do amazing things. It's when we distrust teachers and we don't give them the space to do that, and, and we throw superimposed programs and ideas on them, then, then they resist. So yes, I have seen teachers do absolutely amazing things, but the common denominator of all those instances is an environment where leadership and a board give teachers space to self-actualize. I want to go back to this, this concept of breath. And this might be somewhat of a silly question. I feel like I'm kind of attuned to the fact of like at some point in our development, as we grow up, we actually move away from how important breath is and how we should actually be breathing. So I'm I'm curious as to what is that about? How do we get so far away from that? And then there's there's actually a quote in, in your book that I really loved and I highlighted. You say, most importantly, the word mindfulness comes from a Sanskrit word that means to remember. Implicit in this notion of remembering is that we forget. And then you say, no matter how far away you think you've drifted from yourself, you can remember your way home by following your breath back to the present moment. So question one, how do we get so far away from it? What's, how does that happen? And then how do we use breath to get back? Yeah. This is where I have to be careful because 
I'm so passionate <laughs> about this topic that uh, I will eat up time really fast. So I'll try to practice self-awareness. So the, the simplest way to answer that question is breathing and respiration are not the same. I'll say that again. Breathing and respiration are not the same. They're interrelated. When you're a healthy, self-regulating human being, your breathing behavior serves your respiratory chemistry. So breathing is a behavior. Respiratory chemistry is chemical and it's reflexive. And when you're healthy, your breathing behavior serves the chemical access of your respiration. Because breathing is a behavior, it's subject to all behavioral learning principles, which means breathing learns. You learn your breathing behaviors, which means within the unique circumstances and emotional triggers and psychological triggers of your internal and external environment, you adopt breathing behaviors. You learn to breathe in a particular way to manage your reality. Everyone does this in their own unique way. And this is why breathing is so acrobatic and amazing. I have a machine here called uh, a Capno Trainer, which you can hook someone up to through a cannula. It has a biofeedback software, and it allows people to see their breathing waveforms in real time in relation to their respiratory chemistry. And so you can see when people are holding their breath and they don't realize it. And they do that. Why? Because they're trying to control something emotionally. You can see when people are over-breathing and going <sighs> and dumping a bunch of carbon dioxide. Why are they doing that? Why did they learn to do that? Because when you dump carbon dioxide, you anesthetize yourself. You numb yourself to sensations in your body. And if you don't want to feel the stress in your body, all you have to do is dump some CO2 with a big exhalation. And there you are feeling numb. And so all behaviors have uh, payoffs. That's what perpetuates a behavior. There's a payoff of some kind or a secondary gain or reward. Well, if every time you get stressed, you go, <sighs> and it makes you feel numb and takes the edge off of that stress, there's the reward. But the problem is, is you're learning a new behavior. And so you end up doing what all the time? <sighs> And so now you're crashing your respiratory chemistry in general to take the edge off of stress in one particular moment. So you're trading acute stress for chronic stress by learning a dysfunctional breathing habit. And one of the things that's really interesting, so let's put this in the context of learning, but a part of a, a breathing analysis assessment is I guide someone through overbreathing. It's called guided overbreathing, where you, cra you deliberately crash somebody's CO2 and you hold them there for two to four minutes. And when they're at the tail end of that exercise, one really interesting, and I have done this in presentations to educators, and I'll have a book or just anything with writing on it. And I'll say at the end of that guided over breathing, I'll say, okay, could you just open this up and read this paragraph aloud to all of us? And so they'll go and they'll read the paragraph and I'll say, now can you tell me what you just read? No idea zero idea of what they just read. Why? Because with every millimeter of mercury drop in CO2 represents a two to 4% reduction of blood flow to the brain. So how many kids are traumatized and stressed out and coming into an educational space over breathing to compensate and, and basically self-regulate that stress and then we're inundating them with conceptual and cognitive information. Their brain is completely offline because of their self-regulation strategy. And then we look at them and say, you're not paying attention. What are you doing? You're not doing your work. You're the worst student. And we throw all these identities on top of them. And so now we've just compounded this problem. 
when you can start an educational moment or even a meeting with adults by just stopping and taking two minutes to just don't even change your breath. Just simply notice your breathing and notice if there's any unnecessary tension in your breathing and just try to let that tension go. So if there's anywhere in your breath where you are trying to do the breathing instead of allowing the breath to breathe itself, identify where that is. For me, when I get stressed out, it's up here. I'm doing all this breathing from up here, right? And I notice that I can just let go of that tension. My breath drops all by itself. Now, if I tell someone, take it, breathe deeply. Now they're going to forcefully try to take over their breathing and just compound the problem. But if I bring self-awareness first and I say, notice anywhere you're unnecessarily efforting, efforting, right? Putting in unnecessary effort, let go of that effort. And when you do that, the breath returns to its normal reflexive behavior. And so it can, that can happen within a couple minutes. And now you've been in a space of stillness and quiet and you're regulating with your students. Now you're bonding, you're creating social, and emo you're creating social connection and emotional safety because nothing is more self-regulating than being with other human beings in a space of stillness and quiet and just breathing together. I mean, that is so deeply juiced into our DNA. That is the original self-regulating behavior between a mother and an infant. It's just being quiet and still and mirroring each other's breathing patterns. So I'll stop there. But yeah, that, that's the gist. Matt, in your work now, just up to the minute in the really dysfunctional systems we're finding ourselves trying to help and be a part of, are people pushing back against the idea of mindfulness or are they more ready to embrace some of the teaching you have for them? Both. I, I would say, yeah, both. <laughs> some days, some days it feels like we've had this huge paradigm shift and people finally get it and it feels so good. And then other days it's, it's as if we haven't learned anything. So it's, so it's both. I, I hope I'll be optimistic. I hope it's a two steps forward, one step back type thing. I mean, there, there was a mental health epidemic that took a pandemic for us to acknowledge it and try to do, do something about it. Um, and I think we are, but I already see people, one, trying to, to make up for quote unquote lost learning, yeah. which is just the most horrible phrase in the world. And two, I already see people just reaching for basically half-assed solutions just to check boxes. But I also see other places doing amazing things and actually self-reflecting and, and attempting to change their practices. So it's all happening at once. I suppose it hinges a bit on your first point is leadership. <laughs> totally. A absolutely. The extent to which, and, and here's one of the core problems is that in addition to the things I said before about leadership is that the leadership life cycle in a given district is so short now. And mm -hmm. yet, and so, so, so I always say that, that teachers, you have to go through teachers with everything because they really, in most places, are the enduring culture. Students come and go, parents come and go, administrators come and go, but teachers are the enduring culture. What ends up happening with leadership is they're given these problems to solve and they want to show that they solve them during the time that they're there. 
And if the time that they're there is increasingly small, they're going to be reaching for more and more immediate solutions for these problems, which means it's so nearsighted. It, it's just not in the long run going to help students or a school or a district over time. Yeah. yeah. And going back to that missing ingredient, which seems so basic, but we forget it all the time is the why. If you don't have a common language and a common lens for the shift necessary, which we don't bring into education, you're going to, you're not going to, we spend billions of dollars in education because we aren't rooted in a why. We aren't rooted in, well, in our opinion, neuroscience. I'm glad that you're going back to that. As you were even just talking about breath, I found my own chest kind of tightening. And I think just becoming more aware, even since COVID started of how poor my own breath is, I don't know if it's the fact of a global pandemic that's focused on respiratory impacts has caused that for me, but I, I mean, there's times I just feel my own breath and how horrible it is. Is there an exercise, not that maybe we could do, but one that you could kind of describe that would be a gateway in for teachers listening to this of things that they could do with their students? Yeah, it, it's the, the one I just described is less is more. Take time to be still, be quiet and just simply observe your breathing, notice areas of tension and tightness, and attempt to loosen those areas of tension and tightness. Don't be forceful, just simply pay attention to your breathing. Jose Herrero, who's a researcher, he and his team call it volitional respiration. I think the name of the paper is breathing in the brainstem or breathing beneath the brainstem. His research shows just by consciously breathing, just by paying attention to your breathing, you're going to allow your brain to organize itself in a top-down regulated state, right? So you don't have to, I know there's all the, the breathwork community, and this is stuff I talk about on Instagram all the time. I'm always pushing back on this. The breathwork community is always trying to sell this, breathe uh, this way, breathe that way, do this technique and all this stuff. It's all unnecessary confusion. All you need to do as an educator is create a space where students feel safe enough to be still and quiet with you. That's one. Because for a lot of students, stillness and quiet is, doesn't feel safe, especially when we have all this background noise within us. And then suddenly you take that the external noise away, and now you're actually experiencing the internal noise for the first time. And this is one of the great ironies of our culture today is that we think that distraction is relaxation. We think that distraction is relaxation, that if we match internal noise with external noise, we're relaxed. That's not relaxation. <laughs> That's still a hyper sympathetic state. And so we have to remove the external stimulation and allow ourselves to actually experience the noise, the chaos within, and just attend to it mindfully. Don't judge it. Don't push it away. Don't try to fix it. Don't blame yourself or try to take responsibility. All these mental games. No, just simply be with it. Just notice it and let it go and continue to breathe. And when you notice tension in your breathing, let go of that tension. Come back to your breath. So simple. And one really useful technique is just to take your hands, put one on your chest and, and one on your belly. And this increases the amount of sensation around your breath. So you're not just feeling from the inside out, but you're feeling your breath from the outside in as well. And just notice the sensation of your breathing. Right? Such a simple technique, but it's profound. It's the one I most often go to in my own class. So yeah, I, I think if there's any one technique where you're going to get the most bang for your buck, it's that. And it is so simple, but 
we just don't do it. Nope. There's too many more important things to do. Right. Matt, I'm so glad that we finally got to sit down together and that our paths crossed. You know, we're all extremely grateful for your time and for the work that you're doing. Thank you for that. We need this. Your new book is titled The Mindful Breathing Workbook for Teens. Uh, and I love it. I just have to say in the work that Steve and I do, we're surrounded by workbooks and there's something so simplistic about this. And you already said it in this podcast, going in from the breath perspective just brings us back into our body. It's very simple. Um, so thanks for writing this. It's great. It's great. And I'm excited to keep kind of digging into it. Thank you. And thank you for having me on the podcast. Teachers are going to really love the practical side of Matt that yeah. you brought today. I say that as a teacher, that was, that was many things I needed to hear and, and yeah. resonated in a way that I'll remember.